My thank God for our musicians and for all who are leading us in worship today. We continue a sermon series called Advent Surprises with a homily I've entitled The Word Amid the Powers. Hear these words from Luke 3, verses 1 through 6. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. In the year 29 CE, Tiberius was emperor of Rome. He was venerated throughout the reaches of the empire. He was commander of the mighty Roman military. He had a grander a platform than anybody on earth. We might think the word of God would come to him, Tiberius, so he could declare it from his lofty throne. But the word bypassed the emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. He too wielded considerable influence. He could deploy troops. He could appropriate funds for public projects. He could order executions or stay them. We might think the word of God would come to Pilate so he could deliver it with the firmness of an official decree. But the word bypassed the governor Herod Antipas was ruler of Galilee. His brother Philip ruled Iturea and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler of Abilene. But the word of God bypassed them. The high priest at the time was a man by the name of Caiaphas, a Sadducee from a wealthy family. He held the highest position in all of first century Judaism. We might think the word of God would come to Caiaphas, the reverend of all reverends, 
the cleric of all clerics, the priest of all priests. So he could proclaim it with all the thrust of religious authority. But the word bypassed him too. After skipping an impressive roster of political and religious leaders, the word came to somebody outside the mainstream, somebody external to chambers of power, somebody situated out on the edges of society. The word of God came to somebody accustomed to locust and honey lunches, not highbrow cocktail parties. The word of God came to somebody decked in camel's hair, not fine linen. The word of God came to somebody who held no civic or political office, and no legislative or liturgical authority. The word of God glided over the seats of power like a hawk soaring past the Capitol building until it finally alighted upon John the Baptist. When the word of God went looking for a mouthpiece, surprise, it did not come to a distinguished official, but to an unvarnished prophet. John was out in the wilderness, a far cry from urban centers of influence. Out there, the word was free from the trappings of political maneuvering and the contrivances of institutional religion. Out there, the word was untainted by the machinations of bureaucracy and the pretensions of conventional piety. Out there, the word was uninhibited, unbridled, unrestrained, and unadulterated. The 20th century preacher William Sloan Coffin said, The story of John the Baptist shows that those furthest from the seat of power are often nearer to the heart of things. As Luke pans over a list of royals to zoom in on a prophet in the sticks, he signals that rulers would be overruled. And powers would be overpowered. Sovereigns would be upstaged and clerics would be undercut. The word moved right past the movers and the shakers so it could shake them up a bit. Echoing in the wilderness, the word of God on John's lips outranked all their royal decrees and all their religious dictates. The unrefined prophet was exposing their charade of ultimacy with an authentic word from above. It comes as no shock then that Herod opposed John the Baptist, first tossing him in jail, and finally ordering his execution. Throughout the sequences of world history and across the stretches of global geography, God's word has challenged the powers that be. It has articulated a transcendent alternative to the prevailing zeitgeist and the predominant administration, cutting through the pablum of popular culture and the artifices of political rhetoric, the word of God carries its own authority for those with ears to hear. 
If we believe the word came to John, then we owe his message attention and adherence. John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The Greek term translated repentance is metanoia, which signals a transformation of thought and behavior, an alteration of attitude and action, a process of spiritual and moral reform beneath the sovereignty of God. The shape of repentance follows the contours of the Isaiah quotation. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. This is a topographical metaphor for social equality. John later proclaimed, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. The conviction is that all people are important to God, all people are created in God's image, and all people are to be treated with egalitarian dignity, and we are to adjust our way of living accordingly. Furthermore, the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. This is a topographical metaphor for moral righteousness. John later rebuked Herod for his immorality, told tax collectors to collect no more than the prescribed amount, and implored soldiers to avoid extorting people. He was clear that morality is not to be sacrificed for the sake of personal advantage, economic gain, or professional success. But morality is to be practiced beneath the sovereignty of our righteous God. Even more fundamental to repentance is preparing the way of the Lord. This primarily entails getting ourselves out of the way. When my family and I visited Disney World, I noticed that the upbeat employees cheerfully welcomed us to romp all over the Magic Kingdom, and we did. They were smiling, we were having a big time, but they changed their approach when it was time for the parade. They started moving everyone aside, getting everybody out of the way, delineating a clear lane so that Mickey Mouse and crew could come through. When we lived in North Carolina, I noticed that officials were normally quite happy for us to travel on Interstate 40 along with thousands of other motorists. But they changed their approach when the president was coming east with his motorcade. I remember they cleared all the traffic from the interstate until there were no cars left on it, not even on the overpasses. They got everybody out of the way so the president could come through. Similarly, John said, look, one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. John said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
John said, he must increase and I must decrease. And John stepped aside. He cleared the path. He got out of the way. Preparing the way of the Lord is embracing humility, stepping aside, pushing our own agendas to the margins, decentering ourselves so we can let Christ have the right of way in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our social relations, in our personal morality, and in every dimension of our entire existence. It's only fitting for us to yield to Christ, for he's more than a mouthpiece for God's word. He is the total embodiment of it. He is the word made flesh. And when the word first became flesh and dwelt among us, surprise, it bypassed the palace in Rome, bypassed the temple in Jerusalem, bypassed the capital cities, bypassed the prominent synagogues, bypassed the seats of authority to take up residence in a lowly manger in a tiny town where humble shepherds could gather around. The word later resonated among the hills of Galilee, out there on the edges, inspiring fishermen, instructing crowds, healing the hurting, comforting the burdened, and disturbing the comfortable. The word in Christ eventually got sideways with the rulers, as God's word is so apt to do. Caiaphas demanded that Christ be crucified. Herod interrogated Christ and sent him over to Pilate. Pilate condemned him to a cross, a savage emblem of Tiberius' sovereignty that was used all the time to shut down challenges to imperial ultimacy. The cross, therefore, represented Caiaphas' desire, Herod's complicity, Pilate's command, and Tiberius' dominance, all conspiring together to silence the word of God. But the following Sunday morning, the word resounded again, this time in the acoustics of an empty tomb. We can yield to Christ today and get ourselves out of the way and prepare the way of the Lord because the Word of God is alive and well and always will be. It will never be stifled by any other authority. It will never be subdued by any other entity. It will never be suppressed by any other Voice. It will never be squelched by any other influence. It will never be stopped by any other force. It will never be silenced by any other power. The Word of God is still changing hearts and minds, still changing lives and communities, still changing individuals and institutions, and still challenging the powers that be from the edges of 
society. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen.